When Mike was three, he wanted a sandbox. And his father said, there goes the yard. We'll have kids over here day and night, and they'll throw sand, and it'll kill the grass for sure. And Mike's mother said, it'll come back. When Mike was five, he wanted a jungle gym with swings that would take his breath away and bars to take him to the summit. And his father said, I've seen those things in backyards. Do you know what the yards look like? Mud holes in a pasture. Kids digging their gym shoes in the ground. It'll kill the grass. And Mike's mother said, it'll come back. Between breaths, when Daddy was blowing up the plastic swimming pool, he warned, they'll track water everywhere and they'll have a million water fights and you won't be able to take out the garbage without stepping in mud up to your neck and we'll have the only brown lawn on the block. Mike's mother said, it'll come back. When Mike was 12, he volunteered his yard for a campout. As the boys hoisted the tents and drove in the spikes, Mike's father said, you know those tents and all those big feet are going to trample down every single blade of grass, don't you? Don't bother to answer, he said to his wife. I know what you're going to say. It'll come back. Just when it looked as if the new seed might take root, winter came, and the sled runners beat it into ridges. And Mike's father shook his head and said, I never asked for much in this life, only a patch of grass. And Mike's mother said, it'll come back. Now Mike is 18. The lawn this year is beautiful, green and alive and rolling out like a carpet along the drive where Jim's shoes had trod, along the garage where bicycles used to fall and around the flower beds where little boys used to dig with teaspoons. But Mike's father doesn't notice. He looks anxiously beyond the yard and asks, Mike will come back, won't he? Well, those words written by the late Irma Bombeck really spawned a more important question. Not will Mike come back, not will your children come back home once they've left home, but rather the question is, will your children go home? Will your children go home to be with their Heavenly Father who created them in His own image. I can remember when I was preaching in Houston and we had the drive from the house in suburb of Katy nearby over to the church building there off I-10 and one Sunday morning as we were driving to services I, I saw a father and son obviously. As I recall both of them had on baseball caps and holding each other's hand and walking along there, and, you know, initially one might think, well, isn't that a sweet, sweet, precious sight? But, you know, they never showed up that morning at the church building. They never came there. They were out for a Sunday morning walk, and father and son were together. But where was the father leading that little boy? Not to worship the God 
of heaven. You know, we can read in Scripture that Satan, Satan took Jesus to a precipice. He took him to the pinnacle of the temple and he tempted it to cast himself down. And we can all be assured that Satan will bring our children to the precipice. That if they should yield to his suggestion and jump, he will plunge them into the bottomless pit of hell. And so the key question is, what is the key to those young people making the decision not to jump? Some would immediately say it's the church. No, it's not the church. It's not the four hours they spend here each week, assuming you have them here for every period of Bible study and worship, if you still have children at home. That serves as a wonderful supplement, but not as a solution. It is not the solution. Keeping your children from plunging off the precipice into the bottomless pit depends upon parents. And as I say that, many times parents who have done the very best they could year after year, day in, day out, in setting the example and teaching, still, still, tragically, deal with children who go astray. But that's the key. We must make sure we have done and are continuing to do all that we can to influence our children. As I mentioned in Bible class this morning, even if those children have left home, they still need to see that solid rock, if you will, at home. They still need to know that solid foundation is there, even if they have left that foundation, that mother and daddy are not going to change, that they're going to be where they always were if they were faithful to God and Christ. We've got to set priorities about certain things. And I want to mention three things this morning. Prosperity, participation, and peers. We've got to set priorities in those three areas. Prosperity, participation, and peers. First of all, we must set our priorities about prosperity. The world in which we live is more concerned about social security than about spiritual security. Your children will likely imitate your attitudes toward material things. John's wish for Gaius in 3 John 2 is a worthy one for all of our children. Remember what he wrote there, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. I pray that you may prosper and be in health, but here's the barometer, if you will, as your soul prospers. And oh yes, Jesus did a great deal of teaching, did he not, about attitudes toward the material? When he said, for example, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world, the whole world, and loses his own soul, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul, Matthew 16, 26. And what about this admonition? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consume and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Matthew 6, 19 and 20. 
but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Matthew 6, verse 33. What about the priorities in terms of the material? Are the priorities concerning our education and homework more important than Bible lessons being done? jobs and preparing to get the best possible job and sacrificing the spiritual in order to, to gain that secular job, sports, and allowing sports and sports activities to take precedence over the spiritual activities. Do you realize how consumed this nation has become with, with sports and how serious they have, have, uh, have gotten about it? And there's nothing wrong with, with sports kept in proper perspective. And our children can participate in those things, but they still need to participate in a way that, uh, that definitely shows them where priorities are, and that will get us to our next point in just a moment. But before I go there, I want to mention something recently that really got my attention. This is how serious fans have become. I think fan, they need to come up with another word other than fan. Fanatic won't get it. Fanatic's not strong enough. That's not strong enough for some people. The Houston Texans are not doing very well this year. And the quarterback is not having a good year. And so I read recently that after the last game, which they lost, the fans showed up at his house. And he had to call authorities to deal with fans who were there to assault him, I suppose, if things had gotten out of hand. It, it ended peacefully enough. But can you imagine? That's how serious it has become with some. Satan will use whatever he can. He'll use whatever he can. And the desire for prosperity and notoriety, achievement in the secular realm, is one of Satan's tools. So we must set our priorities about prosperity. And we also must set our priorities about participation. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says, Abstain from every form of of evil, as the New King James puts it. And I like that translation. Every form of evil, everything that is evil, anything and everything that is evil, we abstain from it. And we do not allow participation to get beyond the parameters of what this book allows. Some of you may remember an incident that I think I wrote a bulletin article here about and talked about perhaps in a, in a lesson. An incident that I witnessed when I was in a, uh, or attending a congregation, visiting there on a particular Sunday out in Texas. I was a guest speaker there, as a matter of fact, on that day near Austin, Texas. And I, I uh, witnessed the true penitence of a parent and his child. And you may remember this, but I want to remind you about it because it definitely illustrates the participation point that I'm seeking to make. 
You may remember that a father and a daughter, as I reported it, confessed publicly that they had violated God's will. They, they confessed their sin to their brothers and sisters in Christ. And it was a beautiful example of what Paul said should occur when we sin. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. He had taken his daughter to a father-daughter dance. And they had, it was a costume dance. And they had gone dressed as very worldly figures. Figures that would have been clearly identified as, um, as being worldly. The father said in his confession as he, as he made a statement that morning that he knew it was wrong to attend such an event, but he did not want his daughter to be ostracized by her peers. He wanted her to fit in. And when he made the confession that morning, he made it clear that two wrongs were involved in their actions, going to the dance in the first place and wearing costumes that depicted worldly characters. But you may remember something that was extremely poignant and sobering about this incident. He stood before that congregation and he told us that sometime after the dance, he overheard his daughter's prayers. And she was praying to the God of heaven to forgive her for participating in that activity. Now you don't have to imagine the impact that had on the father. Has he, having led his daughter into that situation, later heard her praying for forgiveness, pouring out, pouring out her heart to the father, as he stood before us and poured out his heart to his spiritual family, saying that he was sickened, absolutely sickened, to think about what he had done to his daughter and leading her into sin. He stood before us, his brothers and sisters in Christ, he tried to choke back the tears as he said, I know what godly sorrow is. I'm feeling it right now. And he could hardly get those words out. And that cry for forgiveness must have touched every heart that was present. And surely it penetrated the heart of a loving and forgiving God. You see, rationalization had turned into repentance. He had rationalized that whole situation, but ultimately, rationalization turned into repentance. And what a lesson this incident teaches. And what a sobering statement it makes about the danger of rationalizing our behavior or rationalizing the behavior of our children. It's a reminder of the responsibility that parents have to teach their children to stand apart from the crowd rather than to go along in order to fit in. And so we need to set priorities about participation. You know, when I wrote about this some time ago, I said this, how many Christian parents justify their children's dress or their participation in worldly activities because they don't want them to miss out on the things other children are doing or because they don't want their children to be viewed as radical? 
There's a vast difference between being radical and being right. And I don't ever want to be radical. But I do want to be right in what I'm doing and in what I'm teaching my children to do. And I can assure you that that determination to do right is much stronger now in one good brother's heart, that brother in Texas, because he knows the heartbreak involved in leading his precious child astray. He knows the importance of being strong and of encouraging his children to be strong, if, uh, even if it means they will be ridiculed by the world. And he now knows how important it is to set the proper example for his daughter and to teach her to resist temptation and not to rationalize. Not to rationalize. And indeed, as Paul wrote to Timothy, our children need to flee youthful lusts. Flee also youthful lust, he wrote, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. 2 Timothy 2, 22. You know, that passage does not read flirt. Flirt with youthful lusts. See how close you can come. No, it says flee. Flee also youthful lusts. And would this admonition not include avoiding doing anything that would contribute to lust in others? Of course it does. Parents, we must teach our children to flee youthful lust, not to flirt with them. By dressing immodestly, by allowing them to participate in activities where they dress immodestly, by allowing them to participate in activities that are worldly activities. Our girls are now grown, our boy too. Our girls are grown with children of their own, and they were not warped. They were not warped by not participating in certain activities that would have compromised the teaching of the Scriptures. And yours will not be warped either, I can assure you. I remember when Tiffany was over here at the junior high, which is now rubble pretty much. But I can remember that that was back in the days when the, the girls' basketball shorts were shorts. They were short. Now, thankfully, as with the boys, they're quite long, generally in high school and college as well, pros too for that matter. But then they were short. And so we simply requested that Tiffany be allowed to wear shorts that were longer down to the knee or below and right around there and modest. <laughs> and they said no. Red Bank said no. She can wear sweatpants, but she can't wear long shorts. I still hadn't figured that one out, but, <laughs> but that, that, was the, uh, that was the decision. So Tiffany wore sweatpants. Nobody ever said anything about, you know, how weird that was that I recall. I don't know, I don't recall whether she ever endured any kind of ridicule for it, but I don't recall that she did. And then, later on at Collierville, the shorts were still short then, but they did let her wear long shorts rather than sweatpants. 
And she was not warped by that. And our children won't be when we simply do the right thing, not the radical thing. And I believe with all my heart that that was not radical. I've preached here on the biblical standard of modesty, and I believe there is a biblical standard. And that's what I want to follow. I don't want to be more strict than that standard. I don't want to be less strict. I want to follow the biblical standard and encourage others to do so. Now notice, notice the second part of 2 Timothy 2.22. After saying, flee youthful lust, he says, but pursue righteousness. It's not enough just to flee youthful lust. That's one part of the equation. We need to flee youthful lust, but, but what? But make sure we're pursuing righteousness, faith, love, peace. Now underline this, with those who call on the Lord, out of a pure heart. With those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. That last phrase reminds us of the need for association with those of like mind. We need to be participating with those who are calling on the Lord out of a pure heart. We need to make sure that our companions are the kind of companions that will lead us to call on the Lord out of a pure heart rather than to lead us in the other direction. And that leads to the final point. We must set priorities about peers, about peers. And where our children are concerned, we need to make sure that we're encouraging them to set their priorities about their peers, their companions, their associations. Do not be deceived. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, evil company corrupts good habits, as the New King James renders it. Evil company corrupts good habits. And so we need to know not only where our children are, but also who is with them where they are. And obviously it's impossible to completely control every situation. And our children will be thrown together with a variety of people if they're in public school, obviously. However, there's a difference. There's a difference between their casual contacts and their constant companions. And parents, if their children are at home, have control in this area. And even if our children are not at home, we need to be doing all that we can to encourage them to come home so they can go home and never compromise our own conviction. Some parents say, well, we're not going to influence our children in making choices and decisions in the matter of religion. We're not going to try to influence our children in making choices uh, in uh, the matter of religion. Well. The advertisers will. They'll do it. And uh, the liquor industry will. They'll do it. And the movie industry will. The television shows will. The neighbors will. The politicians will. The schools will. Everybody else will. And I agree that our child's faith must become his own faith. But he will not develop his own faith on his own. And therefore... 
that influence is required. And as I said, even when that influence is a godly influence and a constant influence, and the best it can be and the best we can do, it still does not always lead to faithful children who remain faithful. But our, our fervent prayer and our desire would be that if we remain constant and convicted, that even those children who have left our homes and who haven't come home, except physically at times, but not spiritually, that ultimately they will. Satan is going to lead your children to the precipice of temptation. You as parents will be the primary factor in determining whether they plunge to their eternal death or whether they fly to the rock of their salvation. And so if you have an influence over children still in your home, then think seriously about taking very seriously that responsibility to exert that influence. And before long, it'll be time to be thinking about the presents you'll be giving your children at this time of year. But think about the best one you could possibly give them. Parents with priorities. That's the best presence you could ever give a child, is to be a parent with priorities. And continue to have those priorities. Even if your children are not where you would like for them to be, where you know they need to be right now, having left home and having left the father, that like Mike in the illustration, those children would not only come home to the earthly house that was once theirs, but that more importantly, they'll come home and return to God and ultimately go home to be with him and hopefully with you and all the faithful for eternity. If there's something in your life this morning that needs to change because you know that you are not living as you should, not influencing as you should, then we plead with you to make that right. And obviously, if you're not a Christian this morning, you're not living as you should. You haven't done the things that are absolutely essential to begin to set the proper example for your children and for others with whom you will be privileged to come into contact and over whom you might have an influence. But you can't do that until you first come to God through Christ in obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then to recognize having believed in Jesus as the Christ, repented of sins, confessed him to be the Christ, and been buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins, to realize that that is only the beginning, a wonderful beginning, but a beginning only that must be continued as you continue to exert that influence over your children, over your spouse, over all those with whom you're privileged to come into contact so that ultimately, ultimately, we and our children will go home to be with God in heaven for all eternity. There may be someone here who's a Christian, who has been a Christian, but is not a faithful child of God now and needs to come home yourself so that you can once again begin to exert the influence you once did. Satan led you to the precipice, and yes, tragically, you jumped 
But thankfully, that's not the end. Not yet. And coming home is still a distinct possibility. In repentance and confession of sin, will you do that as we stand to sing to encourage you?